Welcome to The American Founding, a companion podcast to AmericanFounding.org. In this episode, you'll be introduced to the Constitutional Convention, why it was called, who attended, what kinds of issues were debated, what plans were proposed, and how was this compromise document produced and then eventually released to America in September of 1787. The Call for a Grand Convention On May 15, 1776, the Second Continental Congress, then meeting in Independence Hall, Philadelphia, issued a resolve to the 13 colonies. Quote, adopt such a government as shall, in the opinion of the representatives of the people, best conduce to the safety and happiness of their constituents in particular and America in general. Unquote. Between 1776 and 1780, each of the 13 colonies adopted a republican form of government. What emerged from this was the most extensive documentation of the powers of government and the rights of the people that the world had ever witnessed. These state constitutions displayed a remarkable uniformity. Seven attached a prefatory declaration of rights, and all of them contained the same civil and criminal rights. Four states decided not to prefix a Bill of Rights to their constitutions, but instead incorporated the very same natural and traditional rights found in the prefatory declarations. New York actually incorporated the entire Declaration of Independence into its constitution. The primary purpose of these declarations and bills was to outline the objectives of government, which were to secure the right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. The government that was chosen to secure these rights was declared universally to be a republican form of government. All of the states except Pennsylvania embraced a two-chamber legislature, and all of them except Massachusetts installed a weak executive and denied that governor the power to veto bills of the legislature. All of them accepted the notion that the legislative branch should be preeminent, but at the same time, they endorsed the concept that the liberty of the people was in danger from the corruption of those representatives. And this despite the fact that the representatives were installed by the election of the people. Thus, each state constitution embraced the notion of short terms of office for elected representatives, along with recall, rotation, and term limits. The Second Continental Congress also created the first continental-wide system of governance. The Articles of Confederation created a nation made up of pre-existing states rather than a government that acted directly on individuals. Thus, the very idea of a Bill of Rights was irrelevant because the Articles did not entail a government over individuals. The states were equally represented in the Union regardless of size of population, and only one branch was needed. Normal political activity required the support of supermajorities. The Union was limited to the powers expressly enumerated, and amendment was required to endow the Union with powers that weren't specifically articulated. Amendments required the unanimous approval of all 13 state legislatures. Now, these articles didn't come into operation until the early 1780s because of territorial disputes between two states, and all of the states were required to sign on before the articles became operative on any one state. Now, these two directives produced two opposite and rival situations an early, operating, robust, and healthy state and local politics, and then a late-arriving, weak, and divisive continental arrangement. Several statesmen, especially George Washington, were concerned 
that the idea of an American mind that had emerged during the war with Britain was about to disappear and that the Articles of Confederation were inadequate to foster the development of an American character. According to Washington, we have errors to correct. He argued that the states refused to comply with the Articles of Peace, the Union was unable to regulate interstate commerce, and the states met, but oh so grudgingly, just the minimum interstate standards required by those Articles of Confederation. Others, especially James Madison, were concerned that the state legislatures, which were dominated by what he saw as oppressive, unjust, and overbearing majorities, were passing laws detrimental to the rights of individual conscience and the right to private property. And there was nothing that the Union government could do about it because the Articles left matters of religion and commerce to the states. The solution, concluded Madison, was to create an extended republic in which a variety of opinions, passions, and interests would check and balance each other supported by a governmental framework that endorsed a separation of powers between the branches of that general government. Between 1781 and 1785, attempts to correct these errors, as Washington had said, failed to secure the required unanimous consent of the state legislatures. Matters changed, however, in 1786. Following James Madison's suggestion of 21 January 1786, the Virginia legislature invited all the states to discuss ways to reduce interstate conflicts in Annapolis, Maryland. Now, the commissioners in attendance at Annapolis during September of 1786 chatted about these particular concerns, but suggested that the conversation be both deepened and widened. They endorsed a motion that a grand convention of all the states should meet in Philadelphia the next May, 1787, to discuss how to improve the Articles of Confederation. One might well ask, who or what authorized the Virginia legislature to call the Annapolis Convention? And who or what authorized the Annapolis Convention to call for a grand convention? The answer to both of these is to be found in the Declaration of Independence itself. The people have the right to choose the form of government under which they shall live, and to install such government as they deem appropriate to secure their liberty, security, and happiness. James Madison and George Washington agreed that the principles of the Revolution of 1776 were in danger due to a weak continental arrangement and overbearing, unjust, and reckless state legislatures. But how could they take advantage of the opportunity provided by the Annapolis recommendation? How was such a bold proposal to be put into effect? James Madison persuaded the Virginia legislature to implement the challenge of the Annapolis Convention and invite all of the other states to also reconsider the status of the Articles. He also persuaded the Assembly to be the first to elect delegates to the Grand Convention to consider the business, quote, of May next, unquote. The Virginia Assembly elected 55-year-old revolutionary hero George Washington to head their delegation. Give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry declined because, quote, he smelt a rat, unquote. Dr. James McClurg was selected, even though he had no political experience. James Madison, meanwhile, insisted that he be present. Richard Henry Lee and Thomas Nelson, colonial heroes and signers of the Declaration, also refused to attend. 34-year-old Edmund Randolph, the governor of Virginia. 55-year-old John Blair, an esteemed Virginia judge. 55-year-old George Wythe 
the first law professor of the United States and a signer of the Declaration, 62-year-old George Mason, author of the Virginia Bill of Rights, they were all chosen along with the 5-foot-tall, 120-pound, 36-year-old James Madison. Five states followed Virginia's lead, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Delaware, and Georgia all went about selecting delegates from prominent citizens and known political leaders. So along with Virginia, six of the states had taken the initiative to form their delegations to attend this grand convention without waiting for any formal endorsement by the existing government under the Articles of Confederation. Other states, however, were more cautious and wanted the existing Congress to address the legitimacy of such a gathering. On 28 February 1787, the Confederation Congress endorsed the meeting of the Grand Convention on the second Monday in May next. Exactly what the Congress authorized became a bone of contention. The Recommendatory Act of Congress reads thus, A convention of delegates should meet, quote, for the sole purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation, and reporting to Congress and the several legislature such alterations and provisions therein as shall, when agreed to in Congress and confirmed by the states, render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of government and the preservation of the Union, Did Congress limit the convention to the discussion of specific and particular matters? Or did the Congress empower the convention to run away and propose whatever alterations the delegates considered were needed to preserve the principles of the revolution? New York was the first state to act after the congressional endorsement. The Governor George Clinton faction of the New York legislature selected state Supreme Court Judge Robert Yates and John Lansing to, in effect, outvote Alexander Hamilton. The New York delegation was not particularly prominent at the convention. Yates and Lansing, in fact, left in early July, just prior to the passage of the Connecticut Compromise, and the 32-year-old Hamilton, who lost his life at age 49 in a duel with Aaron Burr, was far more influential in securing the adoption of the Constitution in 1788 than in its framing in 1787. Five states followed New York's lead. South Carolina, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maryland, and New Hampshire all assembled their delegations, while the 13th state, Rhode Island, declined to send any at all. Thomas Jefferson characterized the 55 men who showed up in Philadelphia as demigods, who created a constitution that would last into remote futurity. Alexis de Tocqueville marveled at the work of the American founders. Never before in the history of the world had the leaders of a country declared the existing government to be bankrupt. And the people, after debate, calmly elected delegates who proposed a solution, which, in turn, was debated up and down the country for nearly a year while not a drop of blood was spilled. Madison, in Federalist 37, indicates the uniqueness of the founding. Never before had there been a democratic founding. All previous foundings had been the work of a single founder, like Romulus. And Hamilton, in Federalist 1, suggested that this was a unique event in the history of the world. Finally, government was going to be established by reflection and choice, rather than force and fraud. What is also unique is the fact that the framers were relatively young, well-educated, and politically experienced. Like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution was written by delegates immersed in the writings of Aristotle, 
Cicero, Locke, and Montesquieu, and a world of political experience at both the state and continental levels. Both basic documents were written in Independence Hall, Philadelphia, and 30 signers of the Declaration in 1776 played a vital part in the creation and adoption of the Constitution from 1787 to 1789. How does one read the Convention? Very few of the delegates selected were present at the appointed time for the meeting of the Grand Convention in Philadelphia on May 14th of 1787. All the Virginia delegates were present, however, and fully settled into their accommodations. Washington stayed at Robert Morris's townhouse, and Madison secured lodgings across the street at Mrs. House's boarding house. During this waiting period, the Virginia delegates caucused with each other in an attempt to set the tone for the deliberations of the convention, and they paid courtesy calls on prominent members of Philadelphia society. Some of them entered a Catholic church for the first time. On May 25th, a quorum of seven states was secured. The first order of business was to elect a president, and George Washington was the obvious choice. William Jackson, yet another immigrant at the convention, was elected secretary of the convention, and he recorded the propositions and amendments, as well as the vote tabulation. James Madison took extensive notes of the proceedings, and although some scholars have questioned their authenticity and completeness, they remain the primary source for reproducing the conversations at the convention. Other delegates kept specific notes on certain days, and there are letters back and forth to friends and loved ones, there are some urgent bills sent for immediate payment that augment, and there are personal diaries, some more complete than others. Nothing, however, can compete with or ever replace Madison's notes. The delegates also agreed that the deliberations would be kept secret. The case in favor of secrecy was that the issues at hand were so important that honest discourse needed to be encouraged and that delegates ought to feel free to speak their mind and change their mind as they saw fit. Thus, despite the hot summer weather in Philadelphia and delegates who, on the whole, were rather overweight and hardly dressed down for the occasion, the windows were closed and heavy drapes drawn. The merits and demerits of this secrecy rule have been a subject of considerable debate throughout American history. Reading the Constitutional Convention can be a challenge. And so Professor Gordon Lloyd likes to break it down into what he calls a four-act drama, with each act, like in a play, serving a specific purpose and accomplishing specific things in service of the plot. In Act One of the convention, Governor Randolph introduces the 15-point Virginia plan at the end of May to revise the Articles of Confederation. The decisive features of this plan are the complete structural exclusion of the states in terms of both election and representation, the complete diminution of the powers of the states, and the virtual freedom of Congress to act in those areas for which the states are incompetent, the establishment of an extended national republic with institutional separation of powers, and the introduction of the possibility that short terms of office and term limits, standard features of traditional republicanism, will be abandoned. Under the Holy Federal Articles of Confederation, only the states are represented, and the central government was restrained to the exercise of expressly delegated powers. And under the state Republican constitutions, the governor had very little authority, and the elected representatives were kept under close scrutiny. Madison's Virginia Plan introduces a new understanding of federalism 
and Republicanism. This wholly national Republican plan is debated and amended over the next two weeks, and the main features are adopted by the delegates in mid-June over two alternatives. The wholly federal or state-based New Jersey plan that argues that the Virginia plan goes too far, and the Hamilton plan that claims the Virginia plan does not go far enough. Hamilton, among other things, envisioned a president for life. Act 2 of the convention portrays a crisis, in the sense that the delegates were at a stalemate. Far from the wholly national Republican Virginia plan being accepted, as we might well have anticipated when the curtain fell at the end of Act 1, the delegates from Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, New York, and Mr. Martin from Maryland, the defenders of the New Jersey plan, the old-style federalism of the Articles, and the old-fashioned republicanism of the state constitutions, insisted on questioning the validity of the Virginia plan. They argued that the convention had exceeded the congressional mandate because the Articles had in fact been scrapped rather than revised. Thus, the convention had violated the rule of law. Moreover, the convention was about to propose a novelty, a large country under one Republican form of government that would never be accepted by the electorate. These delegates knew their Locke and Montesquieu, and they relied on their own political experience, which was remarkably extensive. Republican government could only exist in areas of small extent where the people kept close watch over their representatives. A breakthrough occurs at the end of June when Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut suggests that we are neither wholly national nor wholly federal, but a mixture of both. Several delegates echo this theme and the convention decides to move beyond the exclusively national or federal paradigms. The Jerry Committee is created to explore the ramifications of this suggestion that the people be represented in the House and the states be represented in the Senate. This recommendation, the Connecticut Compromise, is accepted over Madison's objections in mid-July. Act 3 of the convention focuses on the debates during August over the Committee of Detail report, especially concerning the itemization of congressional powers. With the Connecticut Compromise in place, the delegates turned from the question of structure to the question of national and state powers. Under the Virginia Plan, Congress was empowered to do anything the states were incompetent to do. By July, that was no longer acceptable to the delegates. A committee was created to draft a constitution, the Committee of Detail that would address the division of powers between the central and state governments and also the separation of powers between Congress, the President, and the Supreme Court. Another issue that emerged in Act 3 is the slavery question. What could Congress do and not do to regulate and or abolish slavery? This is a vital question and deserves special coverage. It is instructive to compare the clause in the Committee of Detail report of August 6th with the signed Constitution of September 17th. The former forbids Congress from ever regulating the slave trade and prohibits Congress from discouraging the trade by means of a tax or a tariff. While by contrast, the final Constitution limits the prohibition on Congress until 1808 and permits Congress to discourage the slave trade. It's interesting to note that in March 1807, President Thomas Jefferson signed into law an act of Congress prohibiting the slave trade effective January 1st, 1808, and during the 1790s, Congress took specific steps to discourage the importation of Africans for the purpose of being sold 
into slavery. Act 4 covers the final three weeks of the convention during the month of September. Despite all the progress that had been made on the structural role of the states and enumerating the powers of Congress, there was much work still to be done on the presidency. The Brierly Committee came up with the idea of an electoral college as a sensible compromise to the long, largely fruitless debates on how to elect the president. It had been clear for four months that until the mode of election was selected, no progress could be made on the length of the term, the issue of re-eligibility, or even the powers of the president. The Electoral College was modeled on the Connecticut Compromise. The president would be elected by a combination of people and states. The Committee of Style wrote the final draft of the Constitution. It included a preamble and an obligation of contracts clause, both written by Governor Morris, and an enumeration of the powers of Congress in Article I, Section 8. During the last week of the convention, the delegates added a few refinements, raised some serious concerns, and discussed what they agreed to over the four months of deliberations. Mason expressed the wish that the plan had been prefaced by a Bill of Rights. Elbridge Gerry supported Mason's unsuccessful attempt to attach a Bill of Rights. Randolph joined Mason and Gerry and declared that he too wouldn't sign the Constitution. And the delegates wondered whether or not the power to create a national university was implied within the meaning of the Necessary and Proper Clause. On the last day of the convention, September 17th, Benjamin Franklin looked at the chair occupied by George Washington and declared the sun enshrined on the chair to be a rising sun. Many delegates over the four months of deliberation had often thought that it was a setting sun. You can learn more about the Constitutional Convention at AmericanFounding.org. Using the link embedded in this episode, you can access detailed information about each of the four acts, read through Madison's notes for each day of the convention, and gain an understanding of the debates, the positions, the issues, and the people directly from their own words. You can also learn more about the individual delegates themselves, what Philadelphia looked like in the summer of 1787, and read concise explanations of the key issues debated at the Constitutional Convention. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American Founding Podcast, a companion program to AmericanFounding.org, both productions of the Ashbrook Center, an independent nonprofit center based at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio. You can learn more about Ashbrook at Ashbrook.org.